Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. Uh, this is part of the Economic and Social Research Council's week-long National Festival of Social Science, Talking Social Science, which uh, I hope you will have uh, read up about, and uh, leaflets available about other events in, in this series. Uh, my name's Alex Bowen. I'm a Principal Research Fellow at the LSE's Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. We're, together with the University of Leeds, part of the ESRC's Centre for Climate Change, Economics and Policy. So it's great to be uh, part of the ESRC's uh, festival this, this week. I'm very pleased to be here to welcome Professor Michael Grubb, our speaker this evening, to, to the LSE. Michael's uh, Professor of International Energy and Climate Change Policy at the UCL Institute for Sustainable Resources. He's also Senior Advisor on Sustainable Energy Policy to the UK Energy Regulator Ofgem, which he's uh, uh, worked for, for many a year, and he's Editor-in-Chief of the journal Climate Policy. He's had a long and very distinguished career in the economics of energy and climate change, marked, I think, by a very strong commitment to bringing academic analysis to bear on important national and international policy questions in these fields. Tonight, Michael will be uh, assessing the lessons from 20 years of debate about technology, energy and environmental problems in a talk entitled Planetary Economics, Macroeconomic and International Implications. This is drawing on uh, a book of that title, which uh, Michael published uh, with uh, co-authors earlier this year. Uh, For those Twitter users in the audience, the suggested uh, hashtag, uh, as we have on the slide here, for today's event is LSE Planet. Uh, I'd ask everybody uh, to put your phones on silence, please, if you are uh, tweeting, uh, so as not to disrupt the event. Uh, This evening's event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as an audio podcast and video uh, afterwards, technology permitting. As usual, after the lecture, there'll be a chance for you to put your questions to to Michael. And on this occasion, there'll also be uh, a book signing taking place. Uh, Michael's book will be available outside, and I think uh, uh, Michael will be very happy to sign copies. Absolutely. There's also a a feedback form uh, which we'd very much uh, like you to to fill in after the event so that uh, uh, the LSE and the ESRC can learn more about uh, what uh, works and what doesn't. But now, would you please join me in welcoming Professor Grubb to the LSE and to deliver his lecture. Michael. Well, thank you very much, Alex, and uh, thank you for all of you for coming uh, to the ESRC for the sponsorship, uh, also the Grantham Institute, and it's a real real delight to be here, actually. I I confess, for quite a while, um, I've been looking forward to the chance to uh, engage a little bit more with uh, what is, I think, a fantastically important uh, group uh, at LSE and and the wider community around that. Now... um, As Alex said, uh, I'm going to be offering some thoughts arising uh, from a book that came out earlier this year, which itself was the product of having uh, retreated about four years earlier 
uh, to try and sort of jump off the rat race of uh, the various jobs that I had had to, to reflect on lessons learned, implications of why, in a sense, were tackling these kind of issues around energy and climate change proving so, so difficult. And um, it's been out for a few months, so I've done a certain amount of talking around. Um, but for me, this is also a, an, an exciting and intriguing and slightly scary occasion in one sense, in that I want to slightly recast an aspect and focus here more on uh, the theoretical and moving towards macroeconomic aspects of a story which uh, I think, and some people have told me, seems to have some legs beyond, beyond energy and climate change. So I, I know that there are a number of very applied uh, and policy-interested and indeed policy-engaged people here, so I may disappoint you. On the other hand, uh, it does feel like it's fulfilling a mission and motivation uh, that led me to take time out last about four years ago because I felt we are not going to solve this problem until we figure out what is, if not wrong, inadequate in the theoretical frameworks that we seem to be using. So that's the sort of theme of, of my talk. Um, it's a big enterprise. I'm afraid it's a big block. Uh, I'm somewhat dated in my approaches, so I've ended up writing a 500-page tome, knowing that not many people will sit down and read that kind of thing these days. Um, but I hope at least I can give you a flavour of the theme uh, and the coverage, uh, and also the fact that it's something which tries to meld theory and empirics at quite a, quite a substantial level. As a big undertaking, um, and I was very fortunate to be joined by two, two co-authors that I've worked with over the years as well, uh, Jean-Charles Lucard from CIRED in France and Carsten Neuhoff from Deutsches Institut Wirtschaft in, in Berlin. So it's a slightly pan-European flavour as well in some of the, uh, the, the thinking. So, as hinted, I'm not going to dive straight into climate change, energy empirics stuff, I'm going to actually start by just observing three puzzles, and to which I'll then add one other, of a slightly more uh, general nature. Then just outline a very light touch, not, not exactly a theory, but a, a theoretical framework that I'm involved. Say a bit about the underpinning evidence and to, to what extent can we, we estimate anything about scales in this framework. And, and I will then start to rebuild the story up, up from there, and I hope by the end you'll find what I mean by second and third domains, and indeed the first down there. So, just to start with the, the three puzzles, and of course there's quite a lot of puzzles around. Um, one that I became more conscious of in the latter stages of this is actually a very long-standing economics uh, observation one could argue about whether it's a puzzle, but at the time it certainly provoked an awful lot of inquiry, which was that now, around 50, 60 years ago, uh, Bob Solo produced what, to some, in some ways, is still a workhorse theory of how economic growth happens around uh, the accumulation of, of, of resources and capital stock. And being an extremely good economist, he then went to measure his theory against data and found, well, this is kind of funny. My theory only explains about half of observed economic growth. And so he added a term usually called AT, or Solo's residual, to say, well, there's some other stuff going on here that explains the actual observed level of economic growth. And, and by the time I'd finished my journey on this story, uh, Jean-Charles really should take the credit for saying, well, hang on, there's a relationship between this and the long-standing debate around the solo residual. 
which I'll come, to, come on to later in the talk. Another uh, conundrum is uh, what uh, I've, I've given it a rather techie term here, the, the energy elasticity conundrum, and I'll show data on that in a second and explain it, but basically I, I would imagine the audience is, is primarily economist and has a sense of, of what a price elasticity is. Um, when you ask the question, what's the price elasticity of energy, you can come up with any number from less than 0.1 to at least 1, depending upon how you define the question. Um, and that throws up some puzzles and, and how you look at the data. Um, and then a third thing that I've certainly been very conscious of in, in my career at sort of interface of research and policy is quite a deep disconnect of theory uh, and practice, at least in this area. Um, and, and eventually I stumbled across a, a quote from a social scientist who said, you know, the funny thing is there appears to be an almost inverse relationship between what economists recommend as the efficient thing to do and what a policy system actually can deliver. Um, the the um, putative um, uh, Canadian presidential candidate, um, sorry, candidate, Stefan Dion uh, summed this up rather more succinctly. Uh, you can see the difference between the academic and the political style of language in these two quotes. But he simply said, having built his platform on a kind of what he called the green shift of taxation, away from taxing bads to taxing, uh, sorry, uh, away from taxing goods like labour to taxing bads like pollution and carbon, his opponent uh, promptly called it not the green shift but the green shaft and handsomely won the election. Um, leaving that comment from Stefan Dion, which is quite a major problem, given that the classical framing of this problem is we need to understand the scale of the externalities, the efficient solution is then to introduce a price to match the externalities, and then you have job done, and anything else, frankly, is less efficient and more costly. So that then leads you to a kind of, and where I end the first chapter after trundling through various other byways of, of data and energy statistics and so forth, is a sort of pessimism squared, um, which is it doesn't seem we can do the effective, efficient thing that policy would appear to recommend. Um, and, and many economists have talked about what that efficient thing is. Uh, and, of course, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, the Nobel Prize went to uh, uh, Tyrol, uh, who has written about climate change. And it's, it's a good paper within certain frames of reference. But his basic answer is, well, clearly, we need a global carbon tax. Now, if you put this proposition to any, anybody in a real political system, um, you'll be out of the door before they've been able to stop laughing at the idea that... We cannot, you may have noticed we have some political problems with the idea of European policy having jealously guarded national sovereignty over taxes. So you, know, you have a real disconnect between what economics seems to say is the obvious logical thing that we must do to solve this problem and political systems. And frankly... Forget a global carbon tax. We can't reach any major international deal, it seems, of any significance. And economics has plenty to say about that. Books have been written on the fact that, actually, we're not going to really solve this problem because the incentives to free ride are just overwhelming. You cannot realistically construct a deal unless you can get you know, major trade sanctions, which is another thing that makes any policy or trade person run for the exit. So we have quite a significant problem. Um, 
Now, before I, I, I go further, um, I'm not going to say a vast amount about climate change itself. I'm sorry if that disappoints, but I assume that an audience like this will know the outlines, will have seen or, or read some of the scientific issues, may have been slightly puzzled about the debate on, so what are the economics of climate damages? How much is this actually going to cost us? Because that's a question in economics we'd really like an answer to. Unfortunately, uh, and there are some people in this room who have spent significant times bashing their heads over this issue, it proves rather thorny to put it mildly. That's a gross understatement. Um, you first have to address a whole bunch of ethical issues about, well, who is doing what to whom and how should you value that uh, when they are disconnected in time and space. Uh, and, and in environmental economics, uh, there's been a long-standing debate about you know, proxy measures, willingness to accept, willingness to pay. Well, unfortunately, it turns out, of course, that the willingness to pay of certain poor regions who would be the, the most impacted by climate change or by actual disappearance of their country in some cases is limited by how wealthy they are. How much they would accept as compensation tends to be rather larger, to put it mildly. Um, but there are really complicated ethical issues around that. Then we have the whole issue of time. Stern um, really made the big impact through his, his work on discounting, uh, which unleashed a ferocious debate in economics that is still in no way resolved. But it is interesting to look at what, in a sense, possibly his main opponent in that debate, Bill Nordhaus, published about saying, oh, but these really low discount rates are ridiculous if you follow through some of the logical conclusions. Um, you then in, enter into uh, a third terrain, which was stimulated by Marty Weitzman's review of the Stern Review, um, in which he basically said, well, actually, I think I agree with Stern, but for the wrong re for different reasons. Stern's got it right for the wrong reasons. Marty Weitzman pointed to the risk of various sorts of extreme events and the mathematics of fat tail distributions and basically said my cost-benefit equations keep blowing up with things that I can't measure because they are very high, very high damage, low probability tails. Um, and, and on this, I've drawn what, what I find a useful way of thinking about what you might call the risk matrix, which is that... The scientists will have various levels. You can project how much warmer will we get, how quickly, how much will sea levels rise. Then they'll say, well, actually, no, it's really climate variability and what happens to extreme rainfall patterns and how long droughts may be. Uh, and then the, the Earth system scientists get in on the act and say, oh, well, no, our real fear is about what if the monsoon system collapses or the, the, the West Antarctic ice sheet, etc. So systemic changes and surprises. And there are social equivalents. There are market impacts that we can measure reasonably well in certain areas, non-market impact where you use estimation techniques, and then the social scientists going, and the military people get involved and say, yeah, but you're assuming the whole society is basically stable in the face of potentially very difficult changes. And so when people talk about, oh, I've done an estimate of the cost of climate change, you have to say, well, which of these boxes are they actually including? Because usually they're only including maybe the, 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 top, you know, the top left, maybe the next one along, maybe the next one down, and that's about it. Because, frankly, who on earth knows how to attach numbers to the rest? And Weizmann's dismal theorem was basically saying, well, actually, there is a pretty good statistical rationale to say that the bits that we can measure are less important than the bits that we can't. Um, and then Tony Gillen himself, I'm not sure if this is quite the term you used, but um, said, yeah, and the real problem is by the time that we actually know for sure we have reasonable evidence around the severity, the planetary risks, other things, it will be far too late to do anything about it. 
Um, therefore, one has to adopt risk management, etc. approaches. So, what that leads you to is, so we want to base policy on the social cost of carbon, which is the, the combination of all of the above. And Tom Downing wrote, I thought, a very nice piece about five years ago when he said, yeah, I think we know roughly what the social cost of carbon is. Um, surveying the whole literature to date, it's probably somewhere between 10 and dollars and $1,000 per tonne of carbon. He was probably right. Um, not a very useful conclusion on which to actually price carbon in the markets. And, and as, as implied by some of this, is actually you get into much more risk, risk management, risk aversion, time discounting. And, and if you try and put a number, what I'm really saying is, you try and put a number when you think you're talking about climate change, you end up with a whole set of debates about ethics over time, generations, and risk aversion. And you, end, you, you kind of lose the sight of the fact you're actually talking about climate change. Let me add a fourth, and this is what will take me into the meat of um, what I really want to to dwell on, um, which is just a basic piece of data about the evolution, I'm sorry a couple of the labels look like they've slipped a little, but um, the evolution vertically of per capita emissions and horizontally plotted against wealth, GDP per, per income, per capita income. Um, now, I, I find this quite a fascinating chart in a way. Well, I've got very used to it. It still seems to surprise people uh, in various ways. Uh, clearly, as countries industrialise, they emit more. No question. Countries below about 10,000, uh, Poland there being a blue exception um, as part of its accession to the EU, but most countries with per capita incomes below 10,000 will use more energy and emit more as they develop. However, when you look at the industrialised world, for the last 20, 25 years, pretty much, we've had broadly stable emissions in uh, North America uh, and in the, the, sort of the new world economies and in the old world economies. Um, but actually, they differ by a factor of two at the per capita level of emissions. And some are significantly lower still. So France is down at around six, and again has been for the last couple of decades, whilst all of those have got very substantially richer over those couple of decades. Now, that's kind of curious if, you, if, if there's an underlying framework that there's a sort of optimum level of uh, energy consumption for a given level of economic development, how do you explain that? Well, you can explain it partly through trade effects and when you screen out trade effects, actually, it doesn't look very different. Yes, it narrows the gap a little bit. It's also interesting the fact that those emissions have been stable as countries have got substantially richer. Um, and in the last three, four years, before, unfortunately, this data, actually, both the, the, the EU, Germany has continued on a uh, pr principally decline with a couple of glitches. Um, and the US has turned over a little. And there are hints. Hence, one may see what in other areas has been called an environmental Kuznets curve. But the central point is, there's no sign of convergence, and in fact, if anything, you could say there's evidence of divergence between the new world and the old world economies. And that is a, a, an interesting fact to ponder. Without going more deeply into that, it will, however, uh, sort of leads me into outlining a theoretical uh, framework that I then developed to try and make sense of the previous three and a half puzzles and, and quite a few others. So, if I may move into 
something which may either look puzzling or blindingly obvious, and I'm never quite sure which. Uh, so, um, sort of, you can tell me. Um, this is a really simple chart. I've made it look a little bit more complicated than, than, than it needs to be by, by drawing a curve. But basically, it's a very, very classic idea that vertically we have some kind of resource use or input to an economy uh, or other useful resource, which can include the capacity of sinks to absorb emissions, so forth. Okay, fine. Horizontally, we've got economic output or consumption or however you want it. And then you have some kind of frontier, often called the technology frontier, sometimes called the possibilities frontier, which is a really bad term for ones that I'll mention. Um, I, after some thought, called it a best practice frontier. Um, most economics textbooks draw it as a straight line. I chose to draw it curving for reasons we could dwell on, but, but I won't waste time now. Um, and the broad assumption is that a rational economic system will operate somewhere on that frontier, uh, which is incredibly boring, except that we happen to have hundreds of thousands or millions of different resource inputs to economies. And markets, time and time again, uh, in many respects, have proven the best way of optimizing the mix of resources, providing the prices are broadly right. Okay, fine, obvious. Except... I don't know about you, but I have yet to encounter any real entity in my life that is actually right at the frontier. There are always quirks, behavioural anomalies, imperfections, etc., etc., and that applies whether you're talking about individuals, organisations, or whole economies. They're going to inhabit somewhere to the left of the actual, certainly the possibilities frontier, but even the best practice frontier. And... This is not new in economics. Um, again, dating back five or six decades, it was called satisficing behaviour to sort of explain the observation that somehow people seemed to be satisfied with not actually optimising. Because clearly, clearly the implication here is, hey, guys, you could do better. You could reduce your resource inputs and get more output. Um, so it became known in economics as satisficing behaviour. Um, it is what in the book I call the first domain of economic behaviour because I think we should start with where real people and entities are in terms of their actual behaviour. And, of course, this has developed quite substantially as a field of research when you look at behavioural economics and lots of other things I'll touch on in, in a second. So this is the terminological bit. Consequently, it follows that the behaviour of rational optimising agents with not necessarily perfect foresight, but you know, some foresight, is what you can describe as a second domain of economic behaviour. So that basically captures broadly most of neoclassical economics. But of course, that frontier moves. Um, that's nothing new, that's nothing exciting. We all know, thank goodness, technology evolves. That's not particularly interesting. Most models probably have some evolution of technologies, but they usually have it as an exogenous assumption, an exogenous productivity gain. Hey, manna from heaven. Solo's residual. It happens. It's great. The really interesting question is how does it happen? Why? In what directions? And how quickly? Because... Particularly if we have a particular concern, like around carbon, we care deeply about how that frontier evolves. A default, as I've hinted, 
is actually likely to drive us, and there's a bit in the book about why there is absolutely no reason to believe that the direction of innovation in our economic system is optimal in any social sense. I could come back and defend that, that proposition very strongly, but let me just state it for a moment. Um, so if we care about carbon, we want innovation in directions which actually help to pull down that curve over the future. We can do that. If we impose a carbon price, we will move entities down that curve and increase the returns to lower carbon innovation, but it will be clearly at some economic cost. So, you know, the nirvana will be, can we actually accelerate innovation but in a lower carbon direction and maintain or even increase output? But broadly, all of that is what one could call third domain economics. It's the economics of innovation, complex systems development, uh, but ultimately that lead to transformation of systems. So, if I haven't belaboured the point too much, the framework revolves around three different domains of economic decision-making. They involve different processes. They have different theoretical foundations. So, if you look at the second domain, optimising behaviour, broadly optimization based on relative prices, you're typically in economic theory dealing with representative agents, they have rational expectations, relatively stable preferences and stable technology trends. Neoclassical economics. The first domain, satisfying behaviour, when you delve into this literature, it is dominated by habits, myopia, inattention, particularly if costs are incidental and tangible, endemic contractual failures, principal agent failures, risk aversion, you name it, somewhere there's been a, a behavioural economist, psychologist or social scientist who's written reams about this as characterising real behaviour. Summarised behavioural and organisational economics is a theoretical foundation on which, of course, is now much more respectable uh, than it used to be, thanks to a few Nobel Prizes. At the third level, you're looking at transformative behaviour, structural, technological, institutional, etc. change. We're on the realm of strategising here, innovation, trying to develop new things, long-term in, in investment in infrastructure and so forth. And... Um, there is again a very substantial body of theory here around evolutionary economics and the conjoined emphasis that it places that when technologies change, usually institutions have to evolve as well. And those are not competing theories fighting each other for an explanation of what matters. And the number of times I've sat in rooms and watched people throw brickbats at each other around these questions, oh, you know, classical economics is useless, no, it's all about technology innovation, no, it's all about social change. The point that I really try to draw is these are complementary explanations of processes that happen at different social scales. So first you're talking about small units, individuals, individual organisational structures. The second domain, you're broadly talking about the structure of markets and industries. And at the third domain, you're broadly talking about bigger social actors, governments, multinational companies, big entities with strategic planning and investment power. And the same is absolutely true about time. Typically, first domain behaviours, literature is dominated by you know, returns of one to two years if you're lucky. Markets actually tend to, in my view, be most sort of, if all the theories are most approximate when you're talking about timescales of maybe a year, two years, up to maybe a couple of decades. I don't know many market actors and financial institutions which really look way beyond that. There are some. 
Evolutionary economics, you're basically looking at how systems evolve over multiple, you know, from a decade to a century, and, the, and again, the scale moves from national to global, the global diffusion of technologies and systems. Um, and in, in the book, I kind of draw to one example from what might have been the most profitable inve- invention or discovery in history, just about, which is the first oil well. And it still took 75 years to actually become the dominant source of energy. So, oh, actually, maybe um, I'll say this anyway. I don't, I don't know if Dermot will forgive me. Um, <laughs> I joined Optum about three and a half years ago, uh, the UK regulator, and it was very interesting because uh, it's an institution which was explicitly set up to police the market and to ensure competition in the UK energy market. Clearly, it was an institution most fundamentally created in the the vision of second domain economics. That is the fundamental thing. Actually, I found quite a lot of people in Ofgem when I arrived had heard of of, of behavioral economics and were really interested and engaged in all of this, partly because they were trying to get their head around why do these perfidious consumers not actually switch in the optimal way that they should do? And so kind of got quite deep into some of this. But actually, hardly anybody had heard of evolutionary economics. It's just like, what the hell is that? And it's still, I think, my sense is, this third domain has not become, if you like, intellectually respectable, mainstream, and diffused in policy circles in the way now that first domain economics has. Um, but, you know, you may tell me I'm, I'm very happy to be wrong. So if you take this framework... What does that mean in policy terms? Well, um, you can do quite a neat little mapping, I think, in terms of instrument classes. First and foremost, markets and prices, getting the prices right, including externality pricing to the extent that you reasonably can, is going to be the instrument of highest relevance where actors are optimizing, where they are taking rational trade-off calculations, etc. So that's the instrument you want to deploy for that domain. It will have some knockover effects as well on the other two domains. If you jack the prices up high enough, or if there's an oil shock, etc., boy, will some consumers stop satisfying and suddenly think, oh my god, why am I wasting so much energy? But it's a bit of a blunt way of doing it, and you may not get them, and you may not get them for very long, just purely through a price effect, by the nature of what I'd said. Prices and markets will also help to shift the incentives for innovation in the appropriate directions, economise on factor prices, classical thing. But again, and particularly in the energy area and certain other relevant ones, I will argue, it's actually, again, a bit of a blunt instrument. If you really want to get to grips with satisficing, there are basically two routes of doing it getting people closer to the frontier. Standards is one, which time and again proved an effective instrument for this, and when you, either that's not appropriate, don't want to do it, or hit the limits, you have to engage people. You have to find psychological mechanisms and all of the nudge theories to say, guys, do you actually realise how much you're wasting? And, you know, you could do this and that. Um, Again, it will have spillover consequences. If what you're after is transforming a system, however, you have to get your hands dirty in strategic investment. And that is actually surprisingly, uh, for a controversial topic, astonishingly easy to define, in my view. It's an investment which will yield a positive strategic return, which cannot be fully captured by any individual entity in the market. And there's lots of them. 
And as soon as you put it like that, it's kind of, well, yeah, there must be quite a few of those because the literature on anything to do with innovation and infrastructure is full of spillover and public benefits effects. So strategic investment is a term for the thing that will have highest relevance where you are dealing with these transformative processes. Okay? Well, that was, like I say, you may have thought so far this was a statement of the bleeding obvious. Um, I could put some evidence to the fact that it actually doesn't seem to have been, but, but we'll pass over that for the moment. What can we say about evidence? Because there is a respectable uh, on-surface argument, and I know some of the, some of the backlash against behavioural economics would be one quite interesting book that ended up basically saying, well, yeah, this stuff does exist, but it's really pretty small beer compared with serious economics. So the, the, the quantities matter. So... Let me deliberately move first with this chart, uh, which is another quite, I think, pregnant, interesting chart. Um, and it does concern prices. And I use it partly to emphasize that nothing in anything I say should take away from the fact that prices really are very important, even though I'm going to spend most of this lecture talking about other things. Um, but here is an interesting illustration. Vertically, we have the basket of end-use energy prices in different regions, and horizontally, the average energy intensity of different regions. And when you say, so what's our energy bill? Well, the answer is, nationally speaking, energy per unit of GDP is going to be the product of the price and the intensity. That dotted line is the line of constant energy expenditure. So all the countries on that line spend almost exactly the same amount of their national income on energy. And interestingly, you have along that line Japan, Germany, France, and the US, countries which differ by substantially more than a factor of two, but actually are spending exactly the same amount uh, on their uh, proportion on energy for this period of data. Another interesting point of this is that the uh, economies of the former Soviet Union in particular, and all other Eastern Europe, Russia was actually off the scale, um, subsidised energy. Why? Because they wanted to keep it cheap, because cheap energy helps economic growth, etc., etc. Results, after several decades, they end up spending a much higher proportion of national income on energy than any of the OECD economies. Highly subsidised energy, fantastically inefficient, etc., um, became a self-defeating uh, policy agenda. Now, theoretically what is interesting is you can generalise this, and indeed it was a Russian economist who generalised it and wrote a paper a few years ago in which he proposed a couple of laws and one of them uh, of energy studies, and one of them was he said, you know, this is not a recent phenomena confined. He looked over a hundred years of data across a whole range of countries and said, Actually, this, um, the amount that countries spend on energy has remained surprisingly constant uh, within, a, within a certain range, despite huge variations in energy prices, given sufficient time to adapt. And remember, he's measuring total national outcome, taking account of all of the various policies, not just the immediate impact of price on consumption. And in fact, you cannot explain the data that I've just shown you, or Bashmakov's uh, constant uh, the data was from David Newbury at uh, Cambridge. Uh, Bashmakov, as I said, was actually an energy efficiency specialist. So in the book, I've ended up calling it the Bashmakov-Newbury constant, and you cannot explain it with recourse to any of the elasticities you will pick up in a textbook, because this line amounts to an elasticity of minus one. 
the textbooks say the elasticity of energy is oh, maybe 0.2, maybe 0.3. Um, so what's going on? Why have we got such a wide range? The answer really is because, well, when prices have been high, countries have done shed loads of other things as well. Governments have got serious about energy efficiency, strong standards. They've invested in innovation. They've done infrastructural investments, lots of other things. Because, frankly, when prices hit the roof, public scream and they expect their governments to do things that are visible and effective and immediate that are seen to be in the area frequently of standards and investment. Um, and you get innovative responses. They take time to play out, and the policy challenge in this space is to accelerate efficiency and low-carbon innovation for several decades without a sledgehammer of politically completely untenable carbon prices. Now, let me start filling out a little bit more detail, just, just a touch, because time is, is limited. Um, so, I mean, there were kind of too many uh, examples to, to, to choose from in a way. Uh, I pulled out here some data from, from the Carbon Trust, which was uh, doing work with energy on energy efficiency for companies, uh, and did various audits, and actually found there's extraordinary degrees of potential for companies, this is companies, not just individuals, to save money by being more efficient in their energy use. And, and what is more, the Carbon Trust would go back and say, look, guys, here's, here's our energy audit. You can do all of these things. And they would go back a year later and discover that about half of the ones had been implemented if they paid back within one year. And it then drops rapidly and plateaus. It's not actually a pure economic thing, which you'd expect to decline. It's like, well, the reason in part is energy expenditures were generally incidental to core business. The board and top management are worried about their core business, etc. Paul Sod, who was the energy manager, was told, well, you've got a you know, small budget and you've got to get at least you know, two-year payback is the absolute max. Um, and then there were all the behavioural and organisation and lots of other things going on. But it was just a piece of data that I found both, both depressing and fascinating. Um, I will say a bit more about that in a moment, but let me also just flag up some data on uh, the third domain stuff, which has many elements, but one of them is the literature on endogenous technological change. Um, and this is a very complicated chart in a way, but I thought I would just try and illustrate some of the depth of empirical work that's gone on in this space now. These various things show a whole range of technologies, both on the left-hand side, demand-side technologies, right-hand side, energy supply technologies, and the measure is the learning rate. The learning rate is the measure of cost reductions that seem to be correlated with, careful with my term, a doubling of scale in the market. And it's an index, if you like, of endogenous learning and technological change. Now, you will see lots of things. These learning rates are really quite uncertain. You've got central estimates and uncertainty ranges. That's kind of useful, but not great as a predictor if you're concerned to know exactly how much will a given technology cost in five years if its market size has tripled. But, conversely, uh, the, you may note one thing in this, which is none of the ranges actually in this is zero. Actually, it's not strictly true. There are one or two technologies for which negative learning has been observed, but it's exceptionally rare, and like one or two data points out of more than a thousand. Um, and this is problematic and fascinating and interesting because it's damn difficult to build an economic model with endogenous change. It means everything goes non-linear and you can, the model can wander in this direction or that direction because you no longer have a well-defined map that you're optimising against. 
Um, so you have cumulative effects, you have path-dependent effects. It makes life much more difficult. Unfortunately, it happens to be true. Um, and there has been a backlash again against this. Bill Nordhaus published something actually I saw literally weeks before the book went to press. So I could include it, because he said, hey, be careful, these things are really uncertain, and they're hard to measure, and you can get confused and misled by exogenous versus endogenous and other things, and if things get cheaper, they'll get more market scale, so there's a dual causality. And he's right. But unfortunately, there is absolutely no justification for assuming, therefore, the right answer is zero, which is outside of all of the observed ranges. That's a fantastically bad approximation to the data here, and frankly, an indefensible one. So, learning effects are real and they really matter when you're looking strategically at technological evolution. Um, one other window into uh, data and estimation is this beast here. Um, it's called a, a cost curve. Uh, some may be familiar with the concept. Vertically, you have an estimated cost of cutting emissions. Horizontally, how much may those, uh, uh, those options uh, save in carbon terms? This is a curve produced by McKinsey of the Global Estimate for Carbon Abatement in 2013. Uh, it's known as the McKinsey Curve. It's known pretty globally in the governmental world. Most academics hate it, in my experience. They hate it for lots of reasons. One is... Quite a few academics have been doing cost curves for a couple of decades, and they don't see why McKinsey should have all the money and all the glory. Uh, second, uh, any decent economist will deny the existence of the left-hand side of this curve because it's negative and therefore people would do it anyway, so it's clearly evidence of hidden costs and other things. And it is genuinely complicated moving from a static technology representation into a full dynamic taking account of hidden costs and lots of other things. So it's a simplification, like most things in this space. Nevertheless, this and every other cost curve that anybody has tried to produce has these three blocks. It has a negative bit on the left. It has a substantial swathe of stuff in the middle which has fairly modest but positive costs. And it has an effectively tail that you can draw as long as you like on the right-hand side they can find, McKinsey can find it to technologies which were clearly demonstrated and proven, at least in component senses, um, and broadly it gets you into the realm of tech, future technologies, etc., um, and the potential. And, you know, if you look out to 2050, of course, you can expand that right-hand side a lot further. This, incidentally, 25 billion tonnes of CO2 reduction by 2030, that's big. Global emissions total are about 40. So, the McKinsey was seen as being a good news story, and that was why it was sort of promoted. What it really points to is there are various domains, and for these multiple lines of evidence, my um, broad conclusion is, you know, these first and third domains processes, which are, of course, the theoretical underpinnings for the stuff on the left and the stuff on the right, they are not trivially small footnotes to the real deal. They are roughly all three of those, at least as an operating hypothesis, assume all three domains are equally important. If what you want to do is try and transform the global energy system over the next few decades. And it's not just the cost curve data, it's the accumulation of all the various things that I have mentioned and some others besides. I then want to move on now in the rest of this talk to the bit on the, the policy and macro dimensions of this to argue that, moreover, these three pillars are intimately independent. They are complementary, not competing, and if you try and do any one on its own, it will fail. Now, that's a 
macro policy statement, not a particular micro how do we improve the efficiency of buildings. Okay, so a few words on assumptions and predictions. First, I, I felt I should say a little bit more about the energy efficiency issue. Uh, it does remain controversial uh, somewhat in some of the economics community, and I put up a quote there from Dieter Helm. Um, and he makes two basic points. Uh, one is there a rebound effect. You make stuff more efficient, people will do more of it because you make it cheaper to do. Well, that's true, and there's lots of data now on rebound effects. Uh, one point is they're virtually always less than 100%, so you do save some something, and actually in the short run they tend to be much smaller. They're very divergent between different territories. And where there is rebound, it's a damn good thing. Not for energy and environment, because it shows there was a suppressed need and people will do more of it if you make it cheaper, which, frankly, for you know poor people in, in um, off-grid and villages be a very good thing to do efficiencies which enable them to have more lighting and other things or for cold people to be warmer rebound is not a bad deal it is a very good thing which shows that there were economic benefits and welfare benefits um, as for hidden costs um, it just gets very complicated I put a chart there, however, about one of the undisputed success stories, which is energy efficiency standards on appliances, which have become a victim, an embarrassing victim of their own success, because the European Commission uh, introduced standards with labels from G, which was really awful, to A, which was the best. And within just a few years, almost the only thing left on the market was A. And they had to introduce A+, and then A++. And personally, I've got a freezer at home, which is A++. It's quite a tall technology once you actually get effective in incentives in there. I'll skip this one. It's just a, another version of why it does get genuinely complicated. And I'm not saying it's all good. The implication of the complication is you have to do these things, monitor them, learn, and apply the lessons. Which is something which, sadly, uh, a part of this present government failed to do when they said, oh, we know the answer to energy efficiency. It's because consumers have higher discount rates and therefore, if we introduce this thing called the Green Deal, which will establish a, a, an effective financial structure for them to make economically rational choices that involve more efficiency, will have solved the problem. Well, that was classic second domain thinking with a little bit of extension. And this chart here from the book shows guys, there's an awful lot of different things that go on here and explain the energy efficiency gap. And the idea that you were ever going to solve energy efficiency just by tweaking the finances was mistaken. And people who work, that I now consider sort of first domain experts, but basically energy efficiency specialists, said, this isn't going to work. It's not going to work. And it's been a real embarrassment. I don't know quite how. I think they might have got into double figures by now with a lot of effort. And, but, you know... Which is a real pity, because it's in marked contrast with what came before, which was something called CERT, which actually delivered spades in terms of energy efficiency, carbon reductions, and has helped to bring down energy demand and, and in that sense, keep the lights on. So this business about you know, the three domains is not some theoretical abstraction. It really matters when you come to what policies will work in which bits of the problem. Be clear about what kind of behavioural issues you are actually dealing with. Um, coming into, if you like, the other, the other end of the spectrum from micro-efficiency of global oil prices, I would argue that some of this framework has an element of predictive 
power is too strong a word, but at least an explanation of when and why predictions can go horribly wrong. Astonishingly, it is only 15 years since The Economist said, ah, this oil price, you know, it's going down further, it's going to be $5 a barrel. And, when you read it through to the end, it had a caveat. But the caveat was if providing geopolitics in the Middle East doesn't blow up. But now we've got a global oil market, therefore dot, 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 and they ended the article by saying, nor is there much much chance of prices rebounding. Well, I don't know about the history of forecasting errors, but less than 10 years after this statement, oil hit $140 a barrel. Now, that was a speculative bubble, but it is very striking that in the space of 15 years, we now have headlines about, my God, oil price has gone down towards 80. Is this actually going to be sustainable? You know, um, can, can the, the, the countries and companies survive at 80? I mean, it's incredible. What happened, in my view, was, well, it was classic, sort of a bit of wishful second domain plus a lot of exogenous thinking. Actually, of course, oil prices had gone down for a decade uh, and consumers got bored, lazy, satisficing. Efficiency standards, US efficiency vehicle standards were frozen for 30 years. It took until Obama 2010 before they raised them above the level of 1980. So, of course, U.S. oil demand was going up. Oil demand across the developing world went up. And meanwhile, the oil companies said, blooming heck, well, at these kind of prices, we, we can't cover our costs of doing anything new and interesting. Uh, governments have withdrawn most of the tax credits for doing new and interesting stuff. And so supply rapidly, the rate of discoveries rapidly went down. Well, a market in which demand is going up and supply is going down and discoveries are uh, by... 1990 with less than half the rate of, of demand, is obviously an unstable market that cannot survive. So of course the oil price started going up again, and it had to go very high to overcome all of those various factors. So again, I would say to understand these points of transition between the neoclassical domain, the satisficing domain, and the transformative, I'm going to take some big risks here domain, and government's going to help me, is actually very, very important if you are trying to predict something as absolutely fundamental as the global oil market or others. Now, there's other surprises, and of course there's surprises. Technology will always deliver some surprises, but a particularly surprising surprise, I might say, has been the solar one. Incredibly important, and the top one is the long run trend with some, some volume and, the vo- and please note they are both logarithmic scales these are huge changes of scale and cost that have occurred in solar energy the bottom I put a linear scale over time which one could unpick with great interest about the costs and it was partly the industry was growing so fast there were supply chain bottlenecks again some of those require innovation and other developments But the result is a huge transformation of the debate around solar. Why were we so surprised? Well, I think because actually this is mostly driven by a combination of first and third domain. The first domain was when you actually introduce some of these feed-in tariffs, consumers didn't say, oh, let me have a think. Can I save a little bit of money by having this solar cell? They said, hey, we can can be energy independent. We can have it on our roof. We'll go for it. The first domain, psychological, we want to go for it. And boy, do they go for it. And the explosion of the market size, an explosion of investment, China muscled in, huge plants of solar production, and the result, of course, as soon as the, the tension in the market started to come back into balance, prices came way down. Um, but that had really been very poorly foreseen. 
So let me delve a little bit further into the second and third domain, and here we'll get into some slightly more controversial and genuinely uncertain territory. But first, to, to, to move into this, a key problem, but I ask, I'd argue also a key opportunity, is that we're seeking radical innovation. If we're going to decarbonize a global economy, we're seeking radical innovation in some of the least innovative sectors in our economies, at least as measured by R&D intensity. I found it really surprising. I found virtually no literature on this at all. Lots of literature on innovation. Very little saying, well, actually, you know, pharmaceuticals and IT send 10% of their turnover on R&D. Energy, metals, construction, less than 1%. Why? Um, so I kind of had to invent an explanation in the book as to why that factor of 10 or more difference in R&D intensity. But you have to acknowledge that's a problem and also potentially an opportunity, given the importance of innovation in, in economic growth. Um, I don't really have time to talk you through the, the explanation that I offer for why this radical disparity, but, but in a nutshell, we ended up with this diagram, which is at the top, you've got sectors which have an intimate connection between relatively rapid, moderate cost innovation cycles and consumers who are really engaged and really keen to buy either the drug that they need to get better or you know, the, the, the iPhone, which is great piece of kit and section everyone wants one or pay a lot more. In energy, you are talking about sectors where you've got to potentially sink billions of pounds into development of technologies at scale, potentially a decade, two decades before it meet. And at the end of the day, you've got a great marketing proposition because you are going to sell exactly the same thing that all your competitors are selling, which is an electron. And you cannot get a massive markup price by selling an electron. It kind of looks the same to most consumers. So you've got a very weak demand pull. So you get what the field of energy innovation called the technology value of death, and governments kind of throw money at the left-hand side on the ground that R&D, we all agree governments do R&D, they shouldn't get their hands dirty in the middle, so technologies end up really being stuck for decades uh, and dependent on public finance with no real markets. So... What does that imply? Um, well, it brings us obviously to this term of strategic investment. And this is you know, absolutely crucial, difficult, and it's not cheap. This is not for the faint-hearted. And today, really, we're looking at transformation of energy systems, which I would say were, are at least as profound and probably much more profound, ultimately, as the development of offshore oil in the 70s. Now, what this chart shows, incidentally, is an attempt to capture the fact that you, know, you can have vertically the cost of a technology per unit. Let's say you've got a technology which presently is twice as high as the incumbents. Over time, you, and with investment, that will come down. And the third axis is the volume of market. Now, when you multiply time by volume by price, that means broadly the volume of the various wadges there approximates to the total cost investment or returns. And it's one way, if you can get your head around this inelegantly drawn 3D diagram, of showing that however much you have to invest in the top left-hand corner, which by the way can be billions and probably tens of billions, the potential returns will be measured in hundreds of billions or trillions in the energy world. And those returns will be bigger if you have a carbon price and what you are developing is a low-carbon technology. But don't be fooled that therefore some company 
is going to be able to invest tens or hundreds of billions in the top left-hand quadrant in the expectation that at some point in future decades they will be able to capture all of the returns and they are sufficiently confident that governments will have a robust carbon price and that governments will not change any of the rules. And in fact, I asked someone from the, the oil sector... Oh, by the way, on the oil sector... Bear in mind, North Sea Oil took £10 billion of investment annually throughout the 1970s. £100 billion to create this whole new industry that we now think of as being brilliant and huge positive returns, etc. It only happened because of two vast forecasting errors. One of which is, after the 1973 oil shock, people said, oh, the oil price is going to go higher and higher and higher. And they thought this technology will break even up $70, $80 a barrel, but that will be okay because the oil price is going to be going up 100 or higher. Well, it didn't. The oil price crashed in 1986. It went down to about 20. And guess what? They still managed to make this technology economic, having invested £100 billion in creating the industry. And to my mind, you have very similar stories around the French nuclear programme, and I would argue probably around the UK offshore wind energy programme. But that's speculative, can't prove it, but I think there's quite a lot of analogies. What is worth adding is that if, for example, we were to to continue going seriously for, for wind energy at big scale, you've got more variable sources, the system has to change and evolve. I'm not going to talk you through the, the details, but the point is what you discover is you're not just changing the technology, you need to start changing the system to optimally use the technology. In the book, therefore, I move from the the innovation chain sort of product analysis into systems. Uh, There are three case studies, decarbonising transport in the Americas, decarbonising electricity in Europe, uh, and urbanisation in Asia. Obviously, they're very light touch, very high level case studies. But just a little diagram with a scenario about what could happen to electricity demand... Sorry, a scenario about transport transition, including a lot of electrification which will drive up UK electricity demand, that will stop the bottoming out if electric vehicles take off, which then also implies if that's going to be based on largely renewable energy, you need to strengthen grid infrastructure substantially, which is right what is now exercising a lot of European policymakers. So again, and by the way, you've now introduced some curious stuff called an awful lot of batteries, some of which are moving around and some of which could be plugged in and some may be taken out of cars and stuffed in the garage when their the performance is not quite up to transport but it's perfectly good for electricity storage. So there's lots of things that could evolve here. What it really leads you to is something or com- conceptual development that I probably, again, not very well captured. But if you think the vertical here is what is the cost of the global energy system and we are, time is moving us, in this case, towards us, you're not talking about what is the least cost energy future. You're talking about, well, we can kind of build brown futures or we can build green futures. Don't pretend that one is some marginal additional cost to the other. It's not. They are fundamentally different systems. Lots of things have to change depending on whether you go down the brown path or the green path. There is some fascinating modelling work, which unfortunately I didn't have time to go into, which actually replicated that pattern and said, and the most expensive thing is to remain stuck in the middle, because then you've spent loads of innovation in all sorts of different directions, and unfortunately it is the case that over the last decade we have spent many hundreds of billions of pounds basically learning how to mess up the atmosphere a lot more cheaply. 
by finding lots of new smart ways of finding getting more fossil fuels out of the ground. So there's been a lot of, lot of investment committed already down that right-hand valley, which I think is a terrible pity and not very consistent with a sensible risk management strategy. But I hope you get the idea. Now, my watch says uh, I've, I've now just about hit the hour mark. So I am going to move briefly just to flag why I mentioned the solar residual early on. And it's basically, first paragraph there is a, the first bullet is a statement of what I said. Economic growth is not just about resource, resource and capital accumulation. It is about lots of other things. And research, of course, has lots of economists have tried to explore what are these other things. And uh, Tim Besley, uh, professor at LSE, gave a fascinating talk a year ago uh, at the Government Economic Service Conference when he said, well, it seems to be some stuff to do with reducing the persistent suboptimal performance of actors in our systems and other stuff around innovation, education, infrastructure, all that other kind of stuff. In other words, he was basically saying that the solo residual really comprises what in this book we've called the first and third domain economics. Um, and those are recognised as important for economic growth, but they remain largely absent in economic modelling uh, and, frankly, not very well charted in policy. I would argue probably better charted in policy in Germany and China than in the Anglo-Saxon economy. I do, however, argue that energy is a particularly strong candidate to explore all this, partly because it's a pervasive input to many production sectors, which are then prone, marginal costs, not focused, satisfying effects. Partly because fossil fuel markets are uh, intrinsically unstable, and partly because of the data I've shown you about innovation rates. If something is such a low innovation rate, there must be a reasonable chance that having policy focused on accelerating innovation can yield higher returns. And there are some alignments, without going into, into depth here, but there are some alignments with the World Economic Forum Competitiveness Index, which, which, drive, which divides countries into three sort of archetypes. And my guess is where Europe really would want to be, and the UK would be on the right-hand side of an innovation-driven economy, in which case we'd better get familiar with third domain economics and, and its policy implications. Um, and, and one final piece of, of data just uh, to, to compact the, the macroeconomic side. This is a chart uh, where I hope... Uh, it's basically a chart vertically of global GDP projected in models in 2050, horizontally global emissions in 2050. I hope you can all see the pattern. I can't. Basically, it's saying there appears to be no relationship between these two things. But note... I have not drawn how much does it cost to stabilise the atmosphere relative to an optimal future projection. Because I don't think we have a clue what is the optimal future projection. So it's a bit of a fantasy to measure everything in relation. But all the literature you see say, oh, the cost is maybe 1% of GDP, no, it's 2%. It's kind of maybe not very relevant compared with the fact that models suggest that depending upon how smart our economic policy is, the world could be somewhere between 80 and 180 trillion dollars by mid-century. That's a rather more important question. And the question, therefore, is can you do stuff in the energy and climate space which has spillover positives in the wider economic story? And in that sense, I think that this book maybe offers a bit of a theoretical framework for some of the green growth. Okay. Well... With great reluctance, I'm going to have to skip the bit that says this may all sound terribly complicated, but there are ways of simplifying some of it, and then even doing some modelling. 
I will just flag, though, a policy way in economics of characterising these three domains. Is on the left, you've got high, public, high private returns, but other things get in the way. They're not sufficient to motivate action, which is clearly publicly beneficial. The role of markets and prices, where they work effectively, is aligning private with public gains. And on the right-hand side, you're talking about things where the public return is larger than the private return. So, of course, public authorities need to be involved to make it happen. That is a simple conceptual policy map to these three pillars of policy uh, in, in economic terms. I'm going to have to skip a little bit around the fact that you can, surprisingly, do some quite simple modelling based on one proposition, which is one feature of both first and third domain processes is they're largely irreversible. You, you make somebody richer as well as cleaner, why would they want to undo it in energy efficiency? You create a new innovation, you don't have to reinvest in creating the same innovation next year. They are irreversible processes. And in that sense, they provide an enduring adjustment to the pathway i.e. path dependence, which is what all the evolutionary economics literature says is fundamental. And you can model path dependence in some really simple ways, and it does produce some quite interesting insights, one of which is, yeah, actually you do want a substantial variation in the marginal cost of policy, depending upon uh, what it delivers and the enduring nature. So, full circle, I've got four more slides. This one simply says in a complicated way, a reminder of where we started. There are different levels of risk. You've got a domain of where people ignore risks and satisfy some behavior, a domain broadly of cost-benefit framework and reasoning in which the name of the game is what are the costs, what are the benefits, how do you compensate actors? And you've got a domain where the risk management dominates. What is a safe level of atmospheric concentration? How do you secure it? And then one, how do you transform the systems in order to ensure you stay within that safe envelope? Um, the point is, once you accept that mapping, you are no longer in a world where everything can be brought back to a single denominator called the carbon price. Right? So, for example, decisions often may take in relation to North Sea grids actually is a strategic judgment that cannot easily be reduced into a single unit called what carbon visor we assumed. It's a judgment call about is UK serious about an 80% reduction? If so, it's going to have to use its domestic resources to some degree. So to, to, to reiterate, there are multiple lines of evidence that in transforming systems, I think all three of these domains are of comparable importance. I argue that only approaches that integrate across these domains can have potential to generate this green growth. The dominant instrument recommended by, by second day in economics unfortunately tends to maximise political opposition because people don't like paying. Not many people vote for higher energy prices and certainly not unless you can give them a good narrative about what does it do. And that is core to this rather complicated diagram. It's basically about interactions between the pillars. This is, I warned you this would be a policy talk, a theory talk more than a policy talk. I've given lots of talks now around in which I've sort of walked through the way that energy efficiency can help people manage bills and prices can help to fund innovation and innovation can help provide more options for people to respond to rising prices and then give consumers more options. And you can get links between first and third pollutants even better. But it's a package and it's a reinforcing package which can come with, in my view, a justifiable political narrative. 
that that combination can maintain energy bills within the historically observed bounds even whilst prices go up and need to go up. And if that's true in the innovation leg of this, you also then can escape from the global trap of the free rider problem because you have potential to create a climate club of countries that actually do and can and want to sign up to this and work out ways to cooperate. And my final uh, comment, uh, and I apologise for the time overrun, Alex, uh, and all of you, you've been extraordinarily patient. Um, I did realise in the end, I'm not sure if I was pleased or reluctant, but to really get to grips with this, one has to acknowledge the relevance of some other disciplines. You cannot understand these first domain processes properly without looking at social and psychological literature, and indeed management literature. Um, Innovation, the innovation fairies cannot solve every problem. To say, well, you know, innovation will solve this for us, unfortunately, kind of ignores the fact that there's a thing called physics and the first and second laws of thermodynamics. They're rather important. I see no sign that innovation will be able to change those fundamental laws. That means you have to look where do energy resources actually come from, what can we access, and what are the likely constraints on that. And all of the above do involve regulatory and institutional dimensions, and hence one is, is in those, those disciplines are also fantastically important. But I also put this up because there's a wider analogy to draw, and I promise this is my last word. Um, but I guess I actually started life in, as a physicist and as an undergraduate before I migrated in various ways. And it did dawn on me that there is, I think, kind of legitimate uh, analogy here that you know, for two centuries, we basically thought Newtonian mechanics described the universe, described everything. And around the, the latter part of the 18th century, we began getting these sort of awkward observational evidence around very, very small things and very big things. In fact, it's precisely 100 years since um, Einstein published the general theory of relativity. And it's now totally accepted that to understand the physical world, you need different theories for different scopes. You need a theory that meets the very small and a theory that meets the very big. And, and it feels to me like the, the reason, I guess, why I've been led into this was analogous. The problem with energy and climate change is that it's a combination of the individual decisions of 7 billion people on the planet. How they actually behave and take decisions is therefore really important. And not many of them wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to optimise my energy use today. Um, and at the other end, you're talking about transforming some of the most complex interrelated techno technological, socio-technological systems on the planet over decades. Is it surprising you need additional theoretical frameworks to make sense of a problem of that scale? And to my mind, this is simply a matter of understand what processes dominate at what kind of scales, and then you've got a much better understanding of the problem and a much more hopeful route into solutions. And on that note, I shall finish. Well, thank you very much, Michael, for a very fascinating and rich and indeed provocative uh, lecture. And uh, um, note that you put us economists in our proper uh, place. Um, we'll now uh, open the floor to, uh, to questions from the audience. Um, there will be some roving uh, mics, so uh, please uh, wait for a steward.
to bring a microphone before you actually pose your question. Uh, please also let us know your, your name and uh, your affiliation if it's uh, relevant. Uh, I think, Michael, it might be a good idea to take two or three questions sure. and then let you uh, deal with those as a group. So who would like to, to start? Okay, yes, uh, front row over there. Okay. Hi, my name is Eloise. I'm a student here in management at the LSE. And I was very interested in the social and psychological dimension of risk perceptions that you just talked about. And I was thinking, do you think that the academic world can have an impact on that by talking about the, the scale in terms of decades? In terms of? Decades. Okay, thank you. Um, the second question. Gentleman here. Uh, Rob Rod Keenan from the University of Melbourne in Australia. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you were with the Clean Energy Future package that was passed in 2011 was subsequently uh, uh, revoked uh, about three months ago. Um, but how well do you think that covered the three domains? Because it did attempt to... The, the, the most recent energy package in Australia? Yeah, the, 2000, the one that passed in 2011. Okay. And a third question. Yes. Uh, front row. Hello, Howard Covington. Uh, Michael, if you could control Shell for a decade, what would you have Shell do, taking into account what you've been saying? All right. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's take those uh, three questions. One on the... Uh, in integrating the social and psychological dimensions into uh, policy, one on the Australian energy package, and one on even the dictator of Shell. <laughs> okay, um, on the first one, um, well, I suppose it's been a question a bit in my mind. I put a personal touch on it, I found it emotionally quite a stress to hide away and write this blooming book for. Uh, far too long whilst there were raging policy debates, uh, knowing full well that nobody in the policy space ever reads a book of 500 pages. Well, apparently my immediate uh, colleague at Ofgem has done a good, good chunk of it now. But um, That said, it's academia's job to sort out ideas and hopefully bring some, some clarity. And um, Keynes made that very famous statement that actually most, most practical men who sort of despise academia are still actually singing to the tune of some defunct economist without realising it. And actually I think these ideas are important, but the problem is they do take a very long time uh, to diffuse. Uh, and that's sort of in the nature, usually, and that's in the nature, I think, of um, society. And one does all one can to try and accelerate that process. Um, but, I mean, it is encouraging. You know, ideas do evolve, evidence is considered, and I, I think a lot of institutions do put a lot of effort into at least trying to get to grips with some of the emerging ideas, and I think the, you know, the, the support and resources that the, the centres here have had from various dimensions is evidence of that. Um, is it quick? Is it easy? No. Uh, is it important? Yes, absolutely. Um, but perhaps the PS 
is it's a very personal choice whether one wants to stay in academia and get, and I will provoke even more people than just the economists, sort of get trapped in the ref cycle of peer-reviewed publications which come out three years after a relevant policy decision they might have been trying to analyse, uh, or get busy in, in the, the sort of the doing world knowing that peer-reviewed papers are completely irrelevant. To, to one's actual progression in, in, in those worlds. But that's, you know, that's a personal choice, and all those communities matter. Um, Australia package. Um, I felt the... It's quite, I was in Australia 2006 and seven. I had some meetings with uh, the government people, and at that point, at that time, I felt they had become dangerously dependent on the idea that all they need to do was have the carbon price. And the substantial sections of the Australian government were saying, well, let's get, do away with these renewable energy things and do away with these efficiency programs, because once we get the carbon price in, we've solved the problem. And I think they were rather surprised when I turned up and said, guys, I think that's a bit too simplistic. Um, of course, what you then had was from that political push, you had the complete backlash of people saying, well, we don't want to pay, pay a carbon price, you know, I don't know what all this theory about externalities, but energy used to be cheap and we've been asked to pay more. We don't like it. So they voted in Tony Abbott, who basically appears to believe you can do the whole thing without ever having a carbon price, which is an equally and far more damaging fantasy. Um, but I don't think I should go into more details. I don't know the exact balance of the package, but I'd absolutely stress, and one of the things in the book that really struck me was in the final chapter when I sat down to write why any pillar on its own will fail. And that turned out to be a, chapter, a section that just wrote itself, just flowed from the pen. It's absolutely blooming obvious why relying totally on any one of these three pillars will fail. Um, if I could control Shell, um, be, a lot, be a lot happier than trying to control Exxon. Um, but anyway, I probably shouldn't make those kind of comments, actually. I apologise for any... Um, people working in Exxon trying to move them forward. Um, now, Shell is actually an interesting company in this space. I think um, both Shell and BP have made substantial efforts in this space. BP invested uh, quite heavily in solar, but basically came to the conclusion the cost, for, even for them, even you know, before the, dis the, the disaster, Macondo, it was just too expensive even for BP, to do the transformation of the solar cells itself. And so they backed out and they sold it all off. Shell moved into wind energy for slightly different reasons, um, pulled back. I, frank, frankly, if I took your question literally, I would have argued very strongly for Shell to stay in offshore wind energy at scale. And yes, it was going to be a big risk. And the unfortunate thing is I would have also had to say, and this may shock people, invest a huge amount also in lobbying. Because the big risk, and was said to me explicitly by an ex-BP executive, he said, yeah, we've looked at the offshore wind engineering stuff. We could do it. We've got the expertise. We're not going to do it. So why not? Yeah, is the problem with the technology? So no. I led the study for two years, and we concluded, at the end of the day, we're not an electricity company. In oil, we can risk a billion pounds in each of five wells or five exploration areas, strike rich and we'll make 10 billion. In electricity, we could spend billions on offshore wind, and if we really crack it, governments will change the rules of regulation and take the money away from us. So we're not going to do it. It's risk and reward. Risk and reward. And the character of electricity in oil companies is fundamentally different. So I'd want to try and develop shell electricity and renewables, personally, if you ask me. And they have tried, to some degree. 
Let's have another round of questions. Uh, yep. Gentleman four rows back. Um, I was just wondering what you would do to the Green Deal to make it work. Okay, thank you. And uh, in the middle at the back there. Uh, you seem to sort of speak of a, uh, well, not a dichotomy, but you know, in the second domain you have stuff being led by private firms. In the third domain, you kind of regard that as something for governments and states to step in. Do you actually see a role for governments in the second domain and for private business in the third? Okay, thanks very much. And at the front on the right here. Hello, uh, Alexi Phillips from Share Radio. Um, I wanted to ask you something you alluded to briefly in your thing. You talked about China and their investment in solar panels. I was wondering if you could explain or help me understand why you know, so many pessimists often point to the third world. What are we going to do with the third world industrial revolution? They're going to burn lots of fossil fuels. There's no point. But if you look at it, um, the investment in places like China and Brazil has actually gone up very steadily, especially since from 2003 to 2013. It's a huge increase. Um, I was wondering if you could shed some light on why this has happened and that's all. Okay, well, we've got three questions there, one on the Green Deal, one Hi. on uh, government and business roles in the uh, second right. and third domains, whether they should both yeah. be involved or both, and then on the increases in investments we've seen in emerging markets. Okay, um, Green Deal, I would keep it but not drop all the rest. I mean, it's a perfectly sensible thing to do as part of a strategy is to address the differential financial characteristics. The, the, the disastrous mistake was assuming that that could displace all of the other stuff that addressed all of the other barriers and characteristics. But I, I, I see, and, and I mean, that's just a terrible pity. But uh, it, it could, done right along with other stuff, it could be quite a useful bit of financial oil in the wheels of energy efficiency. But it could never do the dominant job my view. Um, <clears throat> that's a brilliant question about governments and industries in relation to second and third domains. Um, first, yes, <clears throat> of course governments have a role in, in the second domain because at least in the energy area, to an important degree, governments define the markets. Uh, and in fact, more deeply in a lot of areas, so there's, there's interesting sort of deeper economic history that while the markets can evolve spontaneously, national markets have nearly always involved government regulation, and in some, it's absolutely intrinsic. Like, you can't have network industries like gas and electricity without regulation, for very obvious fundamental reasons. The way that those rules are set can have a big influence. Uh, and, and a classic example now is... There's, there's, there's an emerging discourse around the difference between European spot markets in electricity, which is basically short on energy price market, on marginal cost, versus a Brazilian model where it's, it's mostly engineered on auctioning 15-year uh, contracts. And exactly the same technology cost characteristics, in the European model, you will always build gas, and in the Brazilian model, you will always build wind. Simply because governments have engineered the quotes market design in ways that, that have the exact opposite risk-reward characteristics. Don't have time to go in, but yeah, so governments are really important in setting the rules of markets. Um, in the third domain, it's harder 
in a way, it is, I think it's easier for public authorities to spend money in that kind of way. But you're absolutely right. Government, uh, industries do take all sorts of strategic decisions, and frequently they are not purely cost-benefit. I mean, project decisions, that's the easy stuff. That's what you get the middle management to, to evaluate and do, the, do their spreadsheets, etc. Where boards really matter in big companies is, should we move into this business or into that business? Where are strategically we're going to put the resources? Those are third domain decisions. It's like the shell. Uh, or BP, will we try solar? How long will we try and stay the course in solar before we abandon it? Shell, how long do we go? Those are strategic decisions about where do we think the future world is going. And that's very much corporate third domain decisions. Um, China and Brazil, I think it, what's happened is uh, very interesting um, and actually quite depressing in terms, of, in, in terms of the role of economic theory, if I come back to the main theme. Brazil, to, to a degree, got into biofuels and then stuck with it against all of the best economic advice when oil prices went down. In a sense, because they'd already created the political constituency of gas growers and ethanol and cetera's. Um, China more recently, well, it's partly because China is doing lots of everything, including building coal plants. It's partly because of a clean development mechanism, which gave them a modest financial incentive to get into this business. And actually, I think we underestimate the importance of that, um, what that instrument did in terms of engaging developing countries. And, and more recently, it is the combination of concerns about energy security, about air pollution, and the sense that China is a major manufacturing power and has the opportunity to dominate the global chain of, of solar. So why wouldn't they do it? Um, there is an important footnote, which I think would, um, you know, people looking for research topics... The role of trade and trade law in relation to third domain economics is fascinating. One of the biggest trade disputes we've had was over China solar cells. Both the US and Europe took China to the WTO because it argued that it was subsidising solar cells and that was unfair competition and trade law. The problem, in a sense, is you can have a set of trade rules which make absolute sense in terms of second domain efficiency... It then begs the question, so where does a third domain investment come from? And what happens when those goods cross borders? And that's exactly what that dispute was about. And, and we had a paper in Climate Policy that said, don't think we've solved that question. We haven't. We reached a compromise sticking plaster to uh, slap some tariffs on the Chinese exports. The fundamental question of how do trade rules work in relation to third domain investment has not been solved. Okay, thank you. We've got time, I think, for one or two more uh, questions. Uh, yes, the floor rows back on my left. Um, Zhao Shen from Neo Economic Consulting and an LSE alumni from the Economics Master's degree here. Um, following up on the questions actually on the business um, sector's role in the whole story, you mentioned that the third domain is um, strongly associated with strategic investments. And I was wondering, given your insights into Ofgem as a regulator, um, what can or what should the regulator do to bring in more private sector involvement? Okay, thank you. And perhaps one more, if uh, anyone has another question. Yes, right at the back here in the middle. Hi. Um, in light of the uh, recent change uh, in the U.S. Senate 
So um, the uh, Republicans taking over. Um, the, um, the Senate leader is a great advocate of coal mining, um, and he's um, pledged to uh, increase fossil fuel use and um, encourage that. Um, I suppose my question is, um, what, what do you think the role of uh, the states is in um, global um, climate uh, climate policy making, and how do you see that? Um, how do how do you see that um, ch changing the future? Okay, thanks, Michael. If I may ask you to be brief, as we're yep. getting near our on time deadline. So, uh, strategic um, investment and regulators, off U.S. politics and coal. I'm sure Dermot Nolan, the chief executive of Ofgem, will um, listen with interest. Unless you wish, unless you wish to answer it, but <laughs> um, the the task. Actually, the major project that I, I was asked to lead when I joined Ofgem was almost exactly that question. How on earth should the regulator behave this? The fundamental thing is Ofgem's legal duties in 2008 Energy Act were changed to represent the interest of, protect the interests of present and future consumers. What does it mean to protect the interests of future consumers? It's a really interesting question. It ultimately led us to quite a radical change in the impact assessment framework that Ofgem uses, and that went through the board last year. Uh, and, and it basically says, yes, cost-benefit analysis numerated is important, but you also have other buckets around distribution and around strategic issues where optionality, uncertainty, compliance, trajectory compliance with long-run uh, legal goals like uh, on climate uh, are, are part of the equation. Um, and that does uh, potentially feed back into more specific decisions around what kind of infrastructure and what kind of funding should be allowed for what kind of infrastructure. Um, on, on the role of the US, uh, that's a much more political question, really, than, than one in relation to the talk. Um, politicians do have a great history of saying that they're going to support one or other fossil fuel sector and then finding that it's far more hard to deliver than they, they think, because there are these things for markets, which are often for good uh, as well as sometimes not. Um, I said, when you said the role of the states, I wasn't sure whether you meant the role of California, New Jersey, and New York, where actually their role is really quite important and interesting, and I don't know how much they may be constrained in the new political context, but they've got a lot of freedom of manoeuvre. California is really interesting in this space. Um, or whether you meant the role of the US. And you have to ask the additional question, which we definitely won't get into, which is, are you talking about the administration or Congress? Uh, the U.S. government negotiates, but it's the administration that negotiates. And Obama wants to do something to leave a legacy in the Paris Agreement at the end of next year. So, boys, there are a lot of U.S.-China talk going on around how to get a good deal in Paris. Whether the U.S. Congress will really like it very much or not, if it's structured in a way that helps the individual states implement. So the White House is going to be doing all it can in the circumstances we face. Yes, it may increase the onus on European-China dialogue. We shall see. Well, let's uh, now bring the event to a close. I just wanted to remind you that if you would like to get a copy of Michael's book, it will be available outside, and I think Michael, you're happy to sign copies here. Ladies and gentlemen, please uh, thank Professor Grove for a fascinating lecture. Thank you.